Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Well, masks are coming off on public transit. As of Thursday, every Bay Area public transit agency has dropped mask requirements for most riders after California put an end to statewide mask mandates. But not everyone is taking their masks off. Because for some people, like people with disabilities or folks who are medically vulnerable, choosing to wear a mask or not is still a matter of life and death. So today, we're going to recenter that experience. Because as more and more people take their masks off, there's going to be a lot of people whose lives depend on that decision. This episode first aired in January and is about what living with COVID means for the medically vulnerable and people with disabilities. All right, here's the show. Every day for the last two years, we have all learned what it means to take a risk. Leslie McClurg is a health reporter for KQED. Every time we walk out the door, we calculate some risk. Should we stand close to this person? Should we take our mask off? Should we go to the grocery store? Should we go to a movie, a restaurant? Whatever it is, we are deciding on a daily basis, is it safe enough to do so? And potentially, if you're vaccinated and current on you know, your boosters, that situation, you, you may begin to let your guard down. That is not the case for a lot of people who are medically vulnerable. Either their system may not be responding to the vaccine, or they've got a disease that if they get COVID, uh, even if their vaccine is protecting them, their disease just really can't take any more threats, basically. They're just too medically vulnerable. I know that you talked with some people who experienced this. Can you introduce me to the Millers and tell me a little bit about who they are and, and where they live? The Miller family, they live in Marin in a small town called Corta Madera, and they have two boys, uh, Carson and Chase, who are 10 and 11. And the two boys are just bright, beautiful, kind of adorable kiddos. Chase, you hi. This is Chase. Chase, you want to say hi? And this is Leslie. I visited them about four years ago for a story about a very rare genetic disorder that both of their boys have. And their parents, Nikki and Danny, uh, gave me the opportunity, kind of took me on a, a morning routine with them to see what it's like to care for their boys. Do you want to wear your jeans, Ben? Yeah? Their rare genetic disorder called Mepan syndrome uh, is a neurological disease that 
fewer than 30 people in the world have. It's kind of like cerebral palsy in that they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't sit up. Their minds are alert. They're totally level with their peers, but they're very, very limited in what they can do. What I saw the morning that I arrived was, you know, two boys kind of waking up from from sleep and then their parents, you know, carrying them out of bed, putting on their leg braces, lifting their limp kind of spasming bodies into wheelchairs, using electric lifts to help them change, like they change their diapers. And then if they needed to bathe them, they use electric lifts to bathe them, um, spoon feeding them their breakfast, wheeling them into a van that also has electric lifts, taking them to school where individual aides help them the whole time that they're at school. You know what, it's Halloween today, so we gotta get your costume okay? And so it was a very elaborate, very time-consuming process for their parents. And that was four years ago before, you know, COVID hit. So, so Chase and Carson fall under this category of medically vulnerable and they have disabilities. So what happened when the pandemic hit? I know you actually recently talked to their dad about this. In some ways, their lives didn't change that much because they are very limited in, in what they can do and they don't go to the park and they don't have play dates and that kind of thing. Nikki and I, when we thought about it, we, you know, we thought that people got a taste of what our lives can be like um, with the isolation and, and not having exposure to other people. But in another sense, their lives changed dramatically and suddenly they couldn't go to school. And so Danny and Nikki, their parents, were suddenly responsible for not only caring for these boys in the off hours of school, but suddenly homeschooling two boys with very high needs and doing all of their you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Suddenly they're doing all of that over Zoom. And again, you know, just trying to do a PT session over Zoom, there's only so much you can do. And... You know, I'm trying to be the PT and watch how it's being demonstrated over Zoom. And um, it's just a, you know, a little bit of a different, different equation for us. And not letting anyone from the outside world in to help because they were worried that their boys might catch COVID and their neurological disease potentially makes them quite vulnerable to COVID. I mean, yeah. So I want to ask you about that when I mean when it comes to protecting Carson and Chase what do the Millers fear will happen if the boys get COVID you know it's an unknown because this is such a rare genetic disorder so they don't know but because it's a neurological disorder and COVID attacks can attack the neurological system they're quite nervous that the boys are medically vulnerable to it and they don't know what would happen and they're so fragile anyways that it's quite a risk what would be the effect on them to, to get it I mean we didn't want to didn't want to try to find out and they were just kind of settling into some kind of norm again. The boys did go back to school this fall, and then Omicron hit. As safe as our school has been, um, there have been uh, some recent cases, uh, both in both of my children's, both of my son's classes. So, you know, getting an email from the school um, notifying us of a positive COVID test in the boys' classroom uh, brings an added element of, of fear. It's such a like painstaking process doing that in our like everyday lives, but to know that your children's health is is at risk in that way. I just can't imagine having to make that decision every single day. I mean, how are they feeling at this point? It'd be one thing if they were just navigating the physical aspect of the risk calculation. 
But they're also going through what we've all been going through, which is the incredibly divisive conversation that's happening on a national level. Mm. So what protocols? Do people wear masks? Do they not? Do they vaccinate? Do they not? And so, you know, I think they feel very fortunate to be in the Bay Area where there's a fair amount of uh, compliance with these protocols. But Danny's terrified to take the boys to places in the country where there's a majority of people who are not vaccinated. It's become so politicized. Uh, I don't view a COVID vaccine any different than a mumps or a measles vaccine or a flu shot. And I don't understand why, um, you know, there's this schism uh, between different parts of the country as it relates to being told that they should get vaccinated. And it's just what I heard in his voice. He's such a nice guy, it's hard to say this, but a little bit of a simmering anger just about the fact that the country is arguing over something that really is threatening his son's lives. He's trying so hard on a daily basis to care for his boys. Now we're sort of back into this situation again, and we may have to pull back, and that's frustrating. So, um, but we'll do the best we can and try to stay in the day and and be positive and, uh, you know, like I said, do everything that we can to keep ourselves and the people around us safe. Coming up, what life has been like for one immunocompromised woman in Berkeley and what it's going to take to keep the most vulnerable people safe moving forward. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. I mean, all right, Leslie, so that was a family with kids who are medically vulnerable and disabled. And I, I know that you also talked with a woman in Berkeley who is immunocompromised. Can you introduce me to Sassy here and tell me a little bit about, about her story? Sassy Outwater-Wright lives in Berkeley, and she is 39 years old. And I'm a disability justice advocate and disability rights activist. 
she found out that she had cancer. So right when COVID hit in uh, spring of 2020, I started having extreme pain in my head and my face. And, they- and she was one of those people that was not sickened by COVID, but kind of sidelined by COVID. I don't know if we remember, but in the beginning of the pandemic, all of the non-emergency surgeries at hospitals were shut down to make room for COVID patients. Well, this was true for people even with brain tumors like Sassy. And so she was waiting for a brain tumor to be removed, but her appointment was canceled and delayed. And unfortunately, uh, you know, that tumor was much worse even than they thought at the time. During pathology, they found out that it was a really aggressive soft tissue cancer, uh, a sarcoma, and it occurred in and around the left side of my skull, my bones, my smooth muscle in my face. Eventually, she had to have four surgeries. They caught it quite late stage because it was so delayed by COVID. Um, four surgeries later, chemo and radiation later, it, it they have removed it, and hopefully she's okay. And this is on top of an entire life of fighting cancer. One of those cancers, when she was a baby, afflicted her eyes and, and left her blind. My superhero name is Tumor Killer Girl, and I just went through my 100th surgery in November. But it totally wiped out her immune system and left her extremely vulnerable to COVID. And so her best protection, honestly, is other people protecting her. That's what will make her feel safe in the world. And she never knows when she steps outside if someone next to her uh, is vaccinated. Well, the hospital I feel safe in, they're, they're always taking precautions. They're, they're using extreme care. But the way to and from the hospital is scarier for me. She wears an N95 all the time when she leaves the house, but an N95 mask presses into that very sensitive area of her face. She can't, if she gets a sniffle, she can't take a COVID test because she's blind, so she can't see the results of that test. So if she gets a sniffle, she has to take all the risk to go to the hospital to get a PCR test. And she's constantly navigating a level of risk to do anything. So there's always that level of of risk of infection, and I can't avoid it. And that part does weigh on my mental health, that that frustration that I just can't. make sure that everybody is is taking the same level of safety precaution that I am. You know, whether or not she wants to go sit in a cafe or go to a dinner party, none of which she's doing yet. But, you know, going forward, she's going to have to make really an intense decision of of weighing her life and, and whether or not it's worth going out there and doing those social things. I miss just busting my way into my best friend's house and throwing myself down on her couch and invited and grabbing her remote. And, you know, that's the kind of life I used to have with my friends and my family, and I don't anymore, and I miss it. I think she has come to the point where she's letting, you know, more people into her life and she's doing more things than she has in the past, Um, but not without an an awful lot of fear and anxiety in doing that and weighing if it's worth it and and how much she needs that social contact for her mental health. I miss my friends. I miss my family. I miss, I'm a musician. I miss performing. I miss the things that are part of community connection and care and being face-to-face with other human beings. I mean, Leslie, what needs to be done to ensure that people, including people with disabilities, immunocompromised or medically vulnerable people, feel safe to go out into the world again as we transition into this 
endemic COVID world. The beginning of the, the lockdown, there was curbside pickup for those for people who are medically vulnerable and special hours at grocery stores that they could go and potentially feel more protected. There was all these online events. There was all these ways that we were accommodating all of us at the time, but we could continue to accommodate those groups going forward so that we live in a world that is more accessible and more equal. I talked to a woman named Alice Wong. She's an activist and disability advocate. She has uh, a, a disability, a neuromuscular disability, and uses a ventilator. And she said it would be really helpful, you know, to make sure that there's enough funds to pay for things like delivery services to administer boosters to the folks who are still inside their house and can't go get their booster shots. You know, make sure those folks have free masks and test kits because they need them inside their houses. Making sure those tests are accessible, like what Sassy is pushing for. Um, you know, potentially having more stricter vaccine mandates, especially for healthcare workers and even home healthcare workers to protect the people who have to bring in outside help. And she also pointed out, you know, that there's this casual acceptance that the pandemic is going to turn into something endemic and that inevitably we're all going to get it and that leaders and medical professionals and public health experts are basically not necessarily acknowledging the fact that people are still going to die in that scenario. And the people who are going to die are going to be the people who are at highest risk, people like her. And so she just feels like they're going to be forgotten, especially in this next stage. Is there any hope that things will get safer for medically for the medically vulnerable people? Or will many people just have to stay home forever? Fortunately, I don't think anyone is, is going to choose to stay home forever. And I think there is actually a lot of hope in the sense that, you know, vaccines will hopefully continue to uptake rates will continue to rise and more and more of us will do that. You know, the fourth vaccine booster just came out for those who qualify because they're medically vulnerable. That's great news. There are several antivirals in the mix. There are unfortunately low supply of those medications right now, but these antivirals like the Pfizer pill um, are very, very, very hopeful going forward. So I think hopefully we will and can create a world that is safe for these folks. But there's going to be this period of time where the rest of us get to go back to normal and where they don't potentially while we ramp up on medications, while we get enough boosters, etc., while we get vaccine levels ramped up, uh, that the world still is quite dangerous for them. And so we need to take care of them during this period. You know, it strikes me that that some of the the things that we need to do to ensure that people with disabilities and the medically vulnerable are safe are actually not really new ideas, but it sounds like it, it does require a little bit of a shift in our thinking about this endemic world. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of ways that we can we can potentially make the world safer. But I think it's also just not forgetting that not everybody gets to go out and party like it's 2019, potentially after Omicron passes and there's this layer of immunity. That's not true for everyone. And so remembering that as we walk forward and making sure that we're caring for, for everybody. I think for Sassy, you know, she pointed out that at the beginning of the pandemic, she could fight for her needs over Zoom because everybody was on Zoom. But now a lot of those meetings are back in person. And it's a little different to be on the only person on Zoom fighting for accessibility. That we're not at those tables. We're not at the tables where 
policies and procedures and healthcare ideas are being discussed and decided upon, we're not at those highest levels to say, where's the disability community in all of this? Remembering to accommodate and make sure that everyone's voice can not only be heard, but be validated at the table, I think is what she is very hopeful the pandemic will bring and that we will remember going forward. I don't ever want to say that anything good has come out of COVID, but I think something good has come out of all of us collectively having a chance to assess our collective mortality together in ways that we haven't before and be more mindful of each other's situations and struggles. And so I'm hoping that in the negative, we take the positive. Leslie, thank you so much. Thank you. That was KQED reporter Leslie McClurg speaking with us back in January. So what about you? How are you feeling about riding transit without a mask? Send us a voice memo or a note via email. We are at thebay at kqed.org. And you might just hear your comments played on our show next week. This episode was originally produced by me and editor Alan Montesilio. Maria Esquinka and Christopher Beal were our producers this week. Kiana Mogadam provided additional editing support and is our senior producer of podcasts. Jessica Placek is our senior editor of podcasts. Jen Chen is our director. And Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. And I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Peace. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 